So hi everyone, I'm here with Freddie Kelly, who's the CEO of Credit Qdos, who are in the Credit Bureau and um, an open banking space. So great, great, great to be with you, Freddie. Thanks very much for, for making the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, so I suppose first off, I'm kind of interested in some of the things you've been seeing. I mean, so you know, we've we've we, we've chatted for a while, but some of the things you've been seeing from um, you know through the pandemic in terms of the open banking product and sort of you know your product over 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 the last over the last really sort of six to nine months. Yeah, of, of course. So um, for those of you who don't know what we do, we're essentially uh, a, a credit reference agency and as well as an open banking provider. So we're really interested in the intersection of this new data source, open banking data with uh, credit risk and how you use that data to kind of understand more about your borrowers and, and what their needs are. Um, and in the last sort of um, six months um, from, from sort of September, we've seen the volume of um, people opting into open banking solutions across the board uh, double. So it went from very quickly from 1 million users to, to 2 million users. And that's not individual connections, that's uh, unique customers opting into open banking solutions. Um, there's been a couple of things that have sort of been driving that. Um, obviously, uh, you know, when you look at kind of fintech uh, and digital banking mm. and digital transformation as a whole, like people need to transact online now. There's just no like in branch, you know, paper based alternative. So uh, open banking is a facilitator of digital connections and data sharing between customers uh, and, and the businesses that they're borrowing money from has, has been one source of growth. Um, but also the kind of change in economic environments of, of individuals. So things like furloughing, uh, payment holidays. We've obviously got new loans, um, emergency loans from the governments for small businesses. All of those have meant that the sort of patterns in customer accounts uh, and, and, and resulting credit risk profiles have, have really changed almost overnight. And so open banking has been a crucial tool in helping companies understand what what the the circumstances of their individual customers look like and helping them deal with those mm. and and when the pandemic hit i mean how much of a, a spike did it cause in terms of in terms of like digital adoption and open banking adoption because i mean it was on a growth curve before um i mean the pandemic hit and now everything feels like it's kind of gone digital was it was it really dramatic i think yes i mean the the thing that i sort of really noticed was was kind of attitude change as well like you know we we talked about we, we, you know you and i were just talking about people working remotely and how quickly mm. The, the transformation took place you know i know that some of the these big enterprises have had sort of like two three year you know investigations and, and projects going on as to like what the future of work looks like and whether we should mm. work from home and you know the the idea that we'd all just suddenly drop everything and go home was was you know unthought of until it had to happen and then it was it was able to happen really quickly because it ha had to happen and so similarly with with our customers you know open banking for, for the last couple of years you know it, it came into uh, to existence in early 2018 uh, and the sort of there was initial kind of slow adoption curve and now that that's sort of really ramped up and um, you know one of the things that that we've seen in the last sort of six months is it sort of went from like a nice to have to a need to have mm. and so you know th there's nothing you can argue with there you know the attitudes of our customers really changed and they said you know I need to do this now and you know this is this is for a wider audience it's going to be you know mm. crucial to the way I underwrite risk and so that, yeah. that's the real acceleration we've seen. And obviously that in turn has bred more, more use and more customers getting comfortable with the standard, which has meant more sharing 
uh, and so on and so forth. And, and in terms of like where open banking sort of sits, I mean, there was a, it seems like there's a lot of traction in the front end in terms of acquisition and doing affordability and those kind of things. And there's sort of quite a bit of adoption in that. And the, the back end collections piece was was a little bit of a harder sort of uh, harder to get people to adopt it. Has, has that piece particularly changed because there's more financial difficulties around? Um, or is it st and is it less on the acquisition side than it was because now it's more around financial difficulties on the almost like on the you know on on that side of the business? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've definitely seen that that use case growing, and there's some great companies doing mm. doing work in that space. We're, we're partnered with a business called Paylink, and I'm sure you know that that provides services to mm. among others the one of the, sec the the largest sort of uh, debt advice companies in the UK, uh, PayPlan, um, and. You know, the, the, I guess with open banking, it's always been about value exchange. And so, mm. you know, whereas traditional credit data kind of can be shared more, more or less un, under the, the surface from a customer perspective, you really need consent from an individual to get that data. Mm. And, and in lending, there's a clear value exchange that says, you know, share this information, you'll get a faster application or a lower rate of interest or your your acceptance likelihood mm. will be increased. And so for, for cases in the use cases in the kind of uh, debt advice and uh, sort of forbearance space. It's been well, what's the equivalent exchange because the, you know the, I'm already a customer at that point, mm. and, and so that question has always been the one that's kind of made that that area kind of I guess more nascent. And and, and we've seen you know some really simple propositions work really well. You know the, the first thing is that the when you think about the analogs, you know to do an income and expenditure analysis over the phone, it's quite painful. Like it's quite mm. slow. You know it's it's fraught with inaccuracy if people give the wrong information not very many people are very good at coming up with you know how much did you spend on xyz category this month mm -hmm. um and also you know you're you're typically speaking to someone in a call center that you don't know that you know maybe you don't want to share that information with and so giving people a way to do that all in their own control uh you know away from sort of someone looking at it and, and actually give them a sense of them being in control which is very often what people that are struggling with debt you know really lack and it's, it's mm. a really helpful feeling to kind of be able to give them mm. uh, that's that's really something that open banking can provide given the right solutions and allowing people to kind of self-remedy mm. also presents a, a massive cost saving to the the providers mm. that that you know normally would spend a lot of money doing this stuff manually um so those have been some big drivers for us and we, we've also just seen again willingness to share data grow and that's you know that's a function of the solutions the user experience you know if you can say to someone you know, I, I remember sort of early on in that kind of uh, initial stage of the development of open banking there were kind of people doing surveys saying you know oh Mr Joe Bloggs on the street would you share your banking data with a third party and obviously they yeah. said no because that sounds terrifying but yeah. if you say you know oh here's a, a secure bank mandated FCA regulated way to share your bank statements that doesn't require you printing off a piece of paper or getting a phone call and having to go through 45 minutes of an income expenditure analysis then people say yeah absolutely that that makes sense yeah. for me and i suppose it's just you know you know with with digital adoption people with within the pandemic we just got so much more used to having everything on our phones or everything done automatically and it's almost like because you can't go and like send paper 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 copies into the into the bank or send them send them send them through in the same way as you could before and i think that's sort of you know is that that's sort of been changing habits to a certain extent it kind of feels at least anyway is it easier to get investment i mean so one of the things that has always been a challenge particularly in the collections world has been around getting investment for digitalization and digital projects a lot of this has been on people's roadmaps for a long time 
through the pandemic, it felt like that kind of changed where almost like you know, it's become much more of a necessity. And so that's sort of gone up a little bit. I'm new finding that almost like from a, you know, going to your clients in terms of getting the OK to put some of these new processes in place. There's more investment that's kind of available. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the like, I guess it comes back to that, like nice to have versus need mm. to have question like, you know, previously that there was a, a huge alert to, to digitization, but it it was never top of the list in many mm. cases because, you know, it, it meant investing in new, new digitization platforms, you know, transformation projects, stuff that would normally take a long time. And, and I guess we've sort of proven that that doesn't have to take a long time. You can mm. kind of retrofit and, and adapt quite quickly with, with, you know, especially with sort of SaaS players like ourselves and others that, yeah. you know, don't necessarily require like a big integration burden. Um, so actually the investment isn't that big to begin with, which is great, mm. but also, you know, it, it necessitates it. Like you say, you know, you, you're not, not able to reach uh, customers in the same way. And, you, you know, um, just, you know, the idea of having to kind of uh, mm. do these things, you know, the manual way, it's, mm. it's almost impossible. Um, and then you can kind of expand your reach, your, your sort of bandwidth with a, with a digital process because it's yeah. not, it's almost elastically scalable. And also you can cut down your cost because you're, you know, even, even if you, even if you still have to have a phone call, you know, why not have a phone call where, you know, your your the person that's doing the triage or the, the advice is sat at a screen with all the information, you know, neatly laid out in front of them and they can have kind a of, nice conversation. Exactly. And, and they yeah. don't have to ask all the hard questions. They can just say, OK, I've got your information. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, so. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, finding the investment inside the businesses to do this stuff is, um, you know, it's 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 always been on the the roadmap for these companies it's just been pushed up to the top of the list which is the key uh, the key kind of catalyst that, that, that the lockdown has brought i always love this idea of co-browsing so you sort of like, so you sort of like you can see the information the customer kind of sees and you can have that conversation about the same information and it sort of like changes the dynamics somewhat if you're actually having a, a call at least as much as there's automation kind of opportunities yeah yeah no I, I i totally agree i think it's it's a much nicer conversation to have and there's no uncomfortable conversations for it for either party mm -hmm. yeah and one of the things that's on the radar is is brexit and i did see um i did see that the F the fca came out with some guidance around um impacts i think it was around psd2 which would impact some of the stuff around some of the uh some of the, the standards around for for open banking um do you have a view on that or i mean how much of an impact do you think that's going to be or do you think the fca will probably have it covered yeah, so that there are a couple. I mean, there's there's a plan in place. There there are a couple of sort of technical intricacies to the way that open banking's implemented, and and it's particularly pertaining to to the passporting of of regulatory permissions. So as a um, as a sort of PSD2 company in each uh, or like each geography in in Europe, they're, they're basically the the regulation is. Um, delegated to the competent mm. authority, which in the UK is the FCA, and, and that's mm. who provides us with an AISP license. And uh, there are equivalents in all the other uh, EU states. And uh, pre-Brexit, obviously, you could you could kind of passport that permission and operate in those countries. And so companies mm. that have done that um, now need to uh, essentially ha have an entity outside of the UK that's, that's still in the EU, EU to retain that that ability right. and kind of update their their permissions and there's also some more technical intricacies around uh, EI death certificates which is sort of the the way um, uh, third parties certify their credibility against banks and, mm. and how those are managed so so there's been some definitely some additional work that's been created um, as a result of Brexit or the, the, the impending 
uh, Brexit um, departure. Um, so, so it's it's not without challenges, but I think for, for you know most companies that are sort of operating in the space, we're, we're kind of very aware that this would be a, a, mm. an outcome and, and have, have prepared for it and and have got you know uh, plans in place and have sort of built those those changes into their their roadmap. Okay. So you know. It, it's a it's a challenge but it's it's not insurmountable yeah so we'll see what happens but it sounds like it's 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 covered at least anyway so yeah exactly and and how are you finding we've obviously been working at home and we were just chatting about you know our various locations where, where we were before we started here um i mean how have you found that in terms of having a distributed team working from home those kind of things i mean is, is that been an easy transition for, for for you and the team or are you uh or is it you know you're finding challenges yeah, I think in the grand scheme of things, you, you, we're very lucky as a business that we're, mm. you know, we're, we're kind of, we operate sort of like a trustless architect architecture. So there's no like, you know, server in the office that we need to have access to or, or network or anything like that. So everyone's got a laptop, they have, you know, security credentials that they use to get into the system and they can work from anywhere. And that was the kind of way we operated before. And indeed, we even had weekly uh, working from home days where people would go and sort of almost practice being at home because, you yeah. know, everyone's got their own lives they've got you know families children whatever and need to, to be able to kind of plan around that um so so in terms of the initial transition there was there was no issue um there are i think people are like easily conflate like sort of working from home temporarily and and, and sort of working mm. from home in, in in covid environments and actually the, the thing that that's been really good about um the way we're working at the moment is that everyone's at home so that you mm. don't have this like oh you know Dave said to me in the office, this happened and you weren't involved in this conversation because, mm. you know, you've got this sort of pockets of information. So that's something that I think at the moment we're lucky that we're sort of not having a problem with. But people will kind mm. of might start to see an issue as there's sort of a partial working, uh, working from home environment in the next couple of months. Um, yeah, that could be a challenge when we go back in the office, isn't it? It's like you have almost like a, an in-office conversation. Yeah, the sort of water cooler chat stuff, thing. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that that can easily be overestimated. The other thing is just like personal resilience and, and morale. Like, you know, we almost like were, were really productive at the beginning of lockdown because we suddenly had all this extra time that we weren't mm. commuting. Um, but you also, you know, we were just talking about, you know, the the dreaded like back to back Zoom meetings and things like yeah. that and how quickly that can drain your yeah. your energy. Um, and, and I found, you know, as a leader of a company, it's, it's, it's challenging to kind of keep everyone sort of feeling that you know sort of um morale and and, and kind of joined uh feeling of progress against our benchmarks mm. if you like you know how, how are we actually progressing because you know not getting everyone together you know we, we have weekly all hands calls we 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 mm. had like everyone else we had our, our quiz for a while we've got like mm. events and, and sort of christmas party stuff and all that kind of thing going on but just you know we, we need um you know non-work time together as a group as a group to, to bond and build relationships especially as we've grown as a team and hired more people this year to sort of gel interpersonally and so that's something i'm conscious of of like how do we make sure that still happens yeah. and we've been doing things like you know uh weekly like randomized one-on-one -on -one chats where people have 30 minutes yeah. where they just chat to each other and it's nothing to do with work and um you know that there are things you can do but it's it's definitely a challenge i think it's it's easy for you to say oh yeah we're fine we've all got laptops we can work remotely and you know certainly compared to a big bank where they've got you know physical machines and mm. you know uh skyscrapers that are not at all covid secure you know that we're lucky that we don't have any of that but we've still got all these kind of um sort of fuzzy issues that that, that kind of uh, only sort of set in you know, a couple of months in that, that we you yeah. know we need to think about and make sure that we stay abreast of 
And, and I think one of the challenges I've been hearing is really around, I suppose, the relationship piece. And so, so we're so used to sort of doing face-to-face -face kind of relationships, face-to-face um, -face, uh, contact to build relationships and sort of video calls. They work, but they do take some of that stuff away. Um, and we've sort of gone into this sort of using video calls as a replacement for it. But, um, you know, long video calls can get very tiring. And there's been a little bit of a move towards, you know, do we have more short video calls? Because those 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 seem to sort of, you know, help in terms of building relationships. And I suppose the question really is, I mean, do you think there's another way we need to start interacting with each other if we are remote than than just trying to replicate what we did in in, in real life? Do you think? Yeah. So I, I'm a real believer in in the written words so, mm. so like I, you know i i think that so, so we we easily like confuse you know slack messages or teams or whatever with 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 writing yeah. and like you know pinging a message to someone isn't the same as like sitting down writing sentences paragraphs pages and, and, and thinking about your thoughts and and it's really easy to have meetings that are kind of pointless because you don't do that first and, and you just sort of chat about stuff mm. and then you, yeah. you have a meeting to set up another meeting and and there's a there's a really good book called called rework which is by the creators of, of Basecamp and and uh, ruby on rails that uh talks about this process and, and this sort of came out you know must be almost 10 years ago now uh, mm -hmm. and and it, and it, it you know they're, they're quite like uh strong advocates of just not having meetings unless you absolutely have to and and i know right. that you know this is something that jeff bezos is famed for as well as like you know you need to have a an agenda and a, a document, a proposal before you have a meeting to, to allow yeah. that meeting to happen. And you know, we're, we're not quite at the point where we're that strict, but actually, you know, one of the things I've noticed, and, and it's been driven by our product team, to be honest, that they've kind of sort of spread this this way of working to the rest of the company. But you know, if you've got a, if you want to have a meeting, you know, writing a, a proposal or a you know, um, a, a job to be done or a, you know, a, a story, user story or, or something that kind of sets out what the what the re, the meeting's about and gives people context and then actually running the meeting with an agenda you know, and i know this is kind of obvious but that that sort of way of doing things is you know even if we were in the same room it's it's incredibly effective and so doing more of that you know putting your thoughts down and, and trying to disrupt you know have more sort of um Great structure structure in your day yeah exactly and, and less less interruptions you know having this kind of immediacy of, of instant messenger can be really negative for productivity because if you're just like letting your inbox and your slack messages run your day then you you end up just being very responsive and reactive and not yeah. actually doing the thinking that, that helps other people get on board with what you're you're trying to build and, and there's slow so many ways of being able to contact each other now with i mean you mentioned slack and email and those kind of things i mean it just it just sort of you get the distractions they just come up all the time with notifications if you're not careful i suppose yeah no absolutely so, so I, I know you've been looking at some of your data and you put out a paper the other day um, a, a little bit around, you know, that younger people have been impacted more by COVID. Have you had any insights that, that really have struck you? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we do this sort of quarterly report called the, the Borrow Index that you can download from our website. And, and we, we essentially ask people uh, how their perception of, of credit and, and uh, borrowing money is, is, is developing and changing over time. Um, and, and we saw some really interesting things in our November report, um, particularly around sort of younger generation borrowers. So the, mm. the kind of the 18 to 24 um, gap, seeing what kind of like a, a bigger impact in how they reported their the sort of impact on their finance, you know, mm. uh, and, and I guess potentially sort of a greater concern, the fact that, you know, they're expecting to or have uh, needed to borrow. So 43% of the, the people we asked that needed to start borrowing 
since since the beginning of the pandemic um and, and about 20 percent more sort of expected to um just to be able to cope um and, and i guess that this this comes down to this like point around financial resilience um mm. that we, we see sort of across the the board um you know people people needing to sort of borrow money to kind of transact day-to-day versus um mm. you know for a specific event or purchase um mm. and so so that's been a uh an interesting and, and I guess concerning development and, and we, it's kind of allowed us to sort of think more about you know what are the the right types of lending models that that mm. support those customers um because you know there's all sorts of credit options available there and, and get being able to compare and, and choose the right one when when they actually need credit and making sure that is the right mm. uh, solution is is really important uh, we also looked at, at this kind of renting population um which was equally you know affected in the sense that they they um they sort of have less runway in terms of resilience and, and savings um uh, and, and uh, they, they need to kind of um uh, need to, to kind of support that with with supplementary uh income or, or credit mm. um and, and again you know this kind of this kind of increased appetite for credit which which is a challenge because when you think about how traditional credit scores are calculated your sort of appetite for risk or appetite for credit i should say can, can be kind of perceived as a as a risk indicator and and mm. you know one of the things we've been sort of thinking from a from a credit risk perspective is you know if, if people you know that were previously prime or, or kind of good credit profiles um in in the last six months have had some kind of blip you know they've mm. they've had a missed payment or they've had a payment holiday or they, they you know they've taken out credit where it seemed out of character all these sort of things like in essence that you know that character wise from a kind of propensity to repay perspective they're still exactly the same person and so those those changes perhaps shouldn't factor in the same way that they traditionally would in terms of mm. how they can now uh apply for future credit and how that affects their, their credit worthiness so mm. looking at these numbers and, and kind of breaking them down by demographic has been really valuable in allowing us to see you know what what changes can we make from a mm product perspective but also like from a lending perspective you know like what are the pockets of customers that are most in need and how can we build products to serve them so customers customers themselves probably haven't changed from their their character in terms of ability to be able to pay back be able to pay back however they've the economy's changed which means that that might have had a had a different impact because it because certainly it feels like the you know the the population's being cut in a different way. You've got some popular some some parts of the population that had probably really good jobs and maybe those 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 sectors, those employment sectors are, you know, under pressure. Other ones are probably a little bit more secure. But fundamentally people's characters don't change in terms of trying to make payments. And so it's almost like a it's added almost like another dimension that we've now got to think about in terms of credit risk and and future credit risk really. Yeah, I th- I think it's really important and this kind of comes back to that. Well, in, indeed, you know, I think a couple of years ago, the FCA put out this paper around affordability and credit worthiness, right? And how they're sort of separate but interlinked. Uh, and, 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 you know, you, what you've just described is exactly that, right? It's, you know, like my ability to repay um, and my propensity to repay in, in, in the context of COVID are kind of very different things. You know, I'm, I'm still the same person from a, like, a, you know, credit is... The, the, the sort of trust barometer right you know credit worthiness mm. so i'm still that same person but you know i've had this big income shock or i've suddenly had to shell mm. out to support you know, a, a family member or whatever and, and all these things you know that, that you know crudely like, i can't be blamed for you know it's, it's yeah. this unprecedented i use the word unprecedented yeah. it's this 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 event that's happened and so how do you kind of 
split those out and having more granular data to be able to do that is, is really powerful. Yeah. The other word we need to use is new normal. So <laughs> yeah, you can put, uh, my, my bingo cards just down here. I'll, I'll, I'll take it off. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what so what what do you think the future is? What do you think the future is for open banking? And as we go into next year, I mean, we obviously we've had extensions of payment holidays. We've had um, you know, extensions of like support schemes. I, hopefully there's a vaccine coming in the next sort of um, uh, you know the next the next the next the next six months or so. Um, what what's the what do you think the future is? Um, and as we look into 2020, yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, the I sort of alluded to before that the, the things that get me most excited are kind of the the new products. Like you know, we we've talked about new data as a way to kind of improve an existing process, i.e., the way that we check creditworthiness uh, for a you know a, maybe a loan or a mortgage or whatever um but at the moment that that's kind of like fitting a, a new solution into an existing problem and um you know th there's no reason that you know creditworthiness checks should happen at a single point in time like a sort of snapshot why you know why can't they continually evolve mm -hmm. throughout the life of life cycle of a product you know and why can't the product be more bespoke and, and customer around the user's individual requirements uh, and and having this new information is is allowing companies to do that you know we we worked on um, a project in the credit union space that was that was um, sponsored by the, the Treasury and, and uh, built a solution where customers could link their open banking information when applying for a, a loan. Uh, mm. And in doing so, would be accepted at a higher interest rate where they previously would have been rejected. But then mm. by demonstrating healthy behaviours through that open banking connection, they could Get a rebate for the additional interest that they paid, so that essentially mm. de-risking the lender and the the customer. Um, and I think that's just the start of like a new crop of lending propositions. And I know everything sort of from fintech businesses right through to mm. um, you know tier one banks are, are kind of looking at how they serve new customers. You know, you think about the growth in the self-employed and, and sort of gig economy sector as well, like the the way in which those people transact isn't you mm. know they get their salary each month and they pay off their bills. It's it's much more fluid than that. And, and so why sort of have a, a fixed view of how that customer uh, uh, operates and how their risk is uh, is mm -hmm. measured when you can kind of do something that, that fits around that model mm -hmm. of working. Yes. Um, so I, I, I'm really excited about that that sort of evol evolution. Um, we're also um, keen to see, you know, that the FCA pushing forward the open finance agenda, which will hopefully see new types of financial data that wasn't included in the original um, definition mm -hmm. of open banking be available through through APIs eventually, and that will obviously um, be a further catalyst for for new solutions and and mm. better better serving customers. Mm. So it's sort of like it's, it's all that the extra information you get can then sort of get you extra nuance in terms of additional or additional products and uh, you know, some discussion around you know, do we need to even need, do we even need to have different types of lending products as a result sort of going forward and it, it sort of opens up some of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Freddie, it's been great to great to chat with you. I, I really appreciate making the time, um, and uh, we'll we'll chat again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. I appreciate it.